Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. The Bridge Builder helps you bring your faith into the public arena and bridge the gap between politics and your Catholic faith. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio for the Bridge Builder today is Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Saturday. Hoping that you have a very blessed weekend. You can catch us here on Relevant Radio each Saturday, a.m. 13.30 at 11 a.m. If you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder, just visit mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena and respond to the deepest challenges of our public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. You can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. That is show at mncatholic.org or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder if we didn't give you a practical way that you can build bridges in public life through our bricklayer segment, the common good. And bridges are built brick by brick. So we have the bricklayer segment at the end of the show to give you practical tips on what to do next in your discipleship. We're looking today at uh, the growing alienation in our public life, the fracturing of our communities, why some places seem to be thriving and other places seem to be struggling. Joining us on the line to unpack a little of that is journalist Tim Carney. He's from Washington, D.C., an editor, commentary editor of the Washington Examiner and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. And you'll have an opportunity to see Tim. He's coming to St. Paul on Wednesday, September 4th for a Minnesota Catholic Conference event. That's going to be at the Carondelet Center at the College of St. Catherine on the, the morning of September 4th. More information about our annual Fall Study Day with Tim and a distinguished panel of respondents can be found at our website, mncatholic.org. But we have a nice little preview of that conversation, and uh, Tim is uh, gracious enough to join us on the show this morning. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me. Tim, what compelled you to travel America and write your book, uh, which has really become one of the most talked-about political books of 2019? Well, it, it was a perception that a lot of people believe the American dream was dead. And this was sort of startling to me, and not what, you know, occurred to us. We saw your political reporter here in Washington, D.C. You see what's going on with, you know, the stock market economy. Unemployment in 2015 was doing pretty well. Uh, I looked around my own life. I'm, you know, married guy. We live in a parish. I'm coaching t-ball. I've got a job. I'm friends with my colleagues. I see all sorts of, you know, upward mobility in our our part of Montgomery County. You see immigrant families moving in and doing well and climbing up the ladder. The American dream seemed alive and well. But then you, I saw that when Donald Trump got into the political race in the presidential race in 2015 and I went around to his rallies, what resonated the most with people was not some specific policy proposal about immigration or trade or this or that. It was his proclamation that the American dream was dead, his explanation that America was no longer great and needed to be made great again, and his rejection of sort of uh, the idea that standard politics could solve it. That was what was resonated. So I want to know why. What was it? What was the difference between the places where people felt the dream was dead and the places where people felt it was alive? So what are some of the key factors that you uncovered when you traveled the U.S. and, and looked at uh, why some people have one attitude versus the other? Well, so it, and it wasn't just sort of 
a perception and an attitude, I realized. There was uh, economic studies I, I saw that showed that economic mobility, the ability to sort of make more money than your parents or to climb up the social ladder or be more likely to finish college or be more likely to get married, social and economic mobility really does vary from place to place in America. Raj Chetty was the, the, the economist who looked at that and said that in some places, you know, he said Salt Lake City and the San Francisco Bay, people are regularly climbing up, but in other places, and for example, around Charlotte, North Carolina was one of the examples, in other places there wasn't. Where you, How you were born, where you were born geographically, economically, socially, that was probably where you were going to end up. And so that, so it's not just a difference in perception. And so when I tried to look at where it was, where we were thriving, where the American dream was alive and where it was dead, the big thing I realized was that there were two types of places where it was thriving. One was what I would call elite circles. So a place where everybody has a college degree. Maybe it's a college town. Maybe it's like Chevy Chase, Maryland, right outside of DC here, um, where they, you know, you have tight-knit communities, you have people who went to college, you have people who know their neighbors, you have parents who are really involved in the public schools or in a private school. But then there were also other types of places, and these were strong religious communities. A lot of sort of small towns in the Midwest would have none of the problems that a lot of the rest of rural America would have. And when I look closely at what made them what they were, they had these you know, Dutch Reformed churches, four of them in a village of 2,000, or Salt Lake City and a lot of Utah just gets much better outcomes than so much of the rest of, of the Mountain West. And so you, I started to see that those two different types of places, the elite places, which are a little more liberal, and the r- religious strong communities, which are more conservative, that they really had good outcomes and lots of optimism. But what I decided, what I write in the book, is they're not two different types of places. They're one type of place. They're the places with strong institutions of civil society, whether it's the small churches, the big church like the Mormons, the Little League, the public school, the alumni network, the places of employment, the little platoons that bring people together. That was a key to where the American dream was alive. And so where those places had crumbled was the key to where it was dead. You use the term alienation to describe what's going on in many parts of our country today. What do you think are its primary sources? And uh, I'll stop there, and, and I'll, I'm going to pick up on that after you uh, answer that question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of sources. Um, in some level, you could you could group them all together and say modernity. <laughs> so technology, the shape of our government, the physical shape of our communities. Um, so I, I write, I kind of break a lot of it down into two classes. And it's not left versus right, and it's not technology versus culture. I say there's a central uh, over-centralization, and there's a hyper-individualism. And they sound like two different things, but Alexis de Tocqueville explained that they, they're two sides of the same coin. And so over-centralization means over-centralization of government. Uh, there's definitely studies showing that as the welfare state expanded, that stuff like church and local charitable activity retreated. And, and some of these studies seem to show a causal connection that goes in that direction. Um, there's also... Uh, over-centralization of our attention. More people are focusing on the national news media, tuning in to CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, worrying about, you know, 
Michael Avenatti or Mitch McConnell instead of worrying about their their neighborhood, their public school, their little league, etc. And that the, those over-centralizations take people away, take power and attention away from the local. But also a hyper-individualism that manifests itself in, you know, people talk about video games, people talk about uh, TV, people talk about social media. I think a lot of that is us retreating from what's around us and becoming atomized. And I, I think the most important thing that fits into that is, uh, into the, the question of hyper-individualism, is also a secularization, that people are um, turning away from communities of faith, that a lot of people say they're religious, but they do not attend any sort of religious service. Muslim, Christian, Jew, this is all true. And then they're not belonging to the single most important institution of civil society in American history, which is the local church congregation. Picking up on that point and and veering into a topic that's much on people's minds today, the recent spate of gun violence, uh, to what extent, in your view, is that part of the alienation we're seeking? You know, Chesterton said that when people stop believing in religion, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And whether or not the data lays this out, and I'm not sure that it does one way or another, we can we know that, at least from the media perspective, the media is covering um, ex- the presence of extreme ideologies, whether it's white supremacism, Antifa, etc., etc., and, and places that people seem to be seeking refuge uh, as a result of their alienation. Do you see any kind of connection here between that alienation that you're speaking of and uh, people turning to uh, extremist ideologies? I think absolutely. Um, I think that's what's going on, and you already summed it up pretty well. Um, one of the unfortunate things about recent politics is people started using the term tribalism as a bad word. But the fact is, human beings need to belong to tribes, and all of us do. And I already listed the types of tribes we belong to. We belong to a congregation. Maybe we belong to a bigger church. We belong to a swim team. And if, uh, if we're lucky, we belong to a strong neighborhood, that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of people don't belong to something, and so they seek out another thing. Historically, we've known. Police have said boy, kids join gangs, because street gangs, because they, it's something they need to belong to. But in the modern age, a lot of times what people are, quote, joining is sort of a, a virtual gang or a virtual community. It's interesting, even if you look at ISIS, ISIS replacing al-Qaeda was, um, you know, a cohesive, geographically localized terrorist organization, al-Qaeda, giving way to something where now there's ISIS-inspired attacks. Even You look at the, the uh, Muslim terrorist attacks that, that we've had, um, and what you saw in San Bernardino was somebody who wasn't at all radicalized by his local mosque. He was radicalized by YouTube videos and message boards. Yeah, and that, that was what the people at his local mosque said, that he had sort of uh, tuned out and become distant. And then you look at the, just the, the recent shooters you had. One of them um, had become a white supremacist. And I, I had written, I've written before, after Charlottesville, and the, the, the guy who drove his car into the crowd and murdered people, that if people need to belong to something. But some of the, so many people now, especially sort of middle-class, working-class young men, are growing up without an identity, without belonging to anything. They don't have a church. They don't go to college. They don't get married. If they have a job, it's sort of hit or miss and deeply impersonal. They don't belong to anything. And so joining an identitarian movement where you put on this sort of 
uh, faux ersatz identity. Not, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with having sort of an ethnic identity. If you're going to, you know, you see them all the time. An Irish American festival, an Indian American festival, people are proud of it. But those identities are formed over generations, with often with uh, with customs and and all that stuff. But these ersatz identities, such as white supremacy and white nationalism, I think they really are people looking for to belong to something, and they sign on to an ideology. That, uh, that doesn't have positive customs and just has divisiveness. Part of what you find in your book, it seems, is that you know strong communities aren't built uh, simply around economics. And how much families, communities, religion, civil society, associations, all those things matter, the little platoons, as you call them. But what can politics do to step in and, and foster strong communities, either at the local level uh, the state level or the national level? How can we support, uh, you know, Catholics, we talk about subsidiarity. How can uh, policy step in and be supportive uh, and give life to, and support to those institutions, those little platoons? So the solutions are a lot like the Ten Commandments, if you're talking to a politician, where about half of them are thou shalt not. All right, let's stop the government from crowding out the private sector. Let's stop the government. I, I talk a lot in Alienated America about the the government trying to drive the church out of the public square. People say, hey, religion is good, but keep it to yourself. And they don't want there to be Catholic adoption agencies or people having their religion be part of their business or anything like that. Those legal and governmental efforts to drive religion out of the public square have to stop because religion is the most important institution historically just going by sort of the numbers, especially by the middle class and, and, the, and the working class. Um, but then there's other little things. I, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, where the whole county mostly is built for cars and not for humans. That makes it harder for us to just let our kids run around. That makes it harder for people to raise families and harder for people to get to know their neighbors. And more likely that people are going to be isolated. So places need to be built in a, in a more sort of humane level. And we know it's possible because it's, it's kind of the way things used to be a, a little more in, in small towns in the Midwest that were, that were thriving. Um, and then the, there, there's lots of other things that, that need to be done sort of with that idea that government program isn't likely to help out people who are suffering or to prevent people from turning to drugs or getting divorced or dropping out. What's most likely to do that is going to be immersing people into strong, robust communities. And so any government uh, attempt to help people who are suffering or to prevent some of these maladies should say, what can we do to let more people um, live and thrive in the sort of communities that currently exist in a place like, again, Salt Lake City or Chevy Chase, Maryland? Your book seems to confirm some of the most important truths of Catholic social teaching about the role of family and participation in community life. Where do you hope Catholic social teaching or the church can play a stronger role in the public discourse around these issues? So the Catholic Church, um, again, I think on the parish level, we need to ask, every pastor and bishop needs to ask, what are the needs of sort of 21st century people in my parish. I live in the suburbs, so it's mostly families. What do suburban middle class and upper middle class families need? I've often argued, and what we tried to do in my parish is, we need a place where we can bring our children and ignore them <laughs> while we hang out with other adults. That's just, it's where there's too much sort of demand for us to micromanage them. So the parish should be the institution 
that fills that need. If you're in an urban parish, say you're in you know an up-and-coming neighborhood or you're in a really popular neighborhood and there's well-educated people with jobs, what do those people need? Both those people who are showing up on Sundays and those people who could be showing up on Sundays, what can you provide them? What are the corporal works of mercy? What are the, the, the needs that we should go and provide them in the way that Christ goes to the blind man? He needs sight, and he gives it to them, and that brings them into following us. So it's the, the best way to evangelize, I think, is also the best way to address these, these uh, corporal needs that I, I talk about in Alienated America, which is to ask on a local level, what do they need? And then if, they need, if the parish needs money to do it, you know, uh, turn to whoever can get that money and do it and fill the needs that are not currently being filled by the Internet or by the, the marketplace or by the government. Tim, what else do you want our listeners to know about your book or some of the findings of your travels or what Catholics can do to combat alienation in America? Um, Again, I I would say that uh, everybody out there who has an ability to sort of, uh, well, first of all, remind people that man is a political animal. You have an ability to shape the world around you, but if you're trying to change Washington, you're probably not going to do it. But if you step up in your parish and you say, hey, I would like this to happen, I'm willing to do the labor, can you provide me with some resources? That's, that's what I've done just in making a t-ball and, and parish cookout in my, in my own parish, um, and that people can do that. And then the other thing I stress, the words of Pope Francis I, I use throughout Alienated America, when he writes about the poor, he writes about the inclusion of the poor, that this is something that a parish has to do. And so this is... Um, both the alienated and the uh, materially impoverished, that we need to work and include them. And that's sometimes an awkward and uncomfortable thing to do, but that's our responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the government to... um, uh, to cut them a check, and it's not just a responsibility to serve at the soup kitchen. The soup kitchen should be the opportunity to reach out and meet and get to know and include these people in what so many of us uh, who you know are listening or are going to read my book have, which is a, a close, tight-knit, human-level community that provides a sense of purpose and that provides a human-level safety net. Um, we need to get more people into those communities that we are currently benefiting from. Tim, that's an excellent point. And if we think about community is literally a term that means the sharing of gifts, uh, we understand deeper that core principle of the call to participation in, in Catholic social teaching is that if we're not including everyone uh, and their gifts, including the poor, including the marginalized, including the vulnerable, then the community life, something in the community life is lost. Those gifts that they bring are not present. So thanks for highlighting that. Thanks for giving us also an, uh, an outstanding uh, preview of uh, your event here uh, your speech here on September 4th at the Crondelet Center in St. Paul. Tim Carney will be joining us along with a distinguished panel of respondents, and we're going to have a great conversation that day on September 4th. Again, more information can be found uh, and registration at our website, mncatholic.org. Again, that's mncatholic.org. Tim Carney is a journalist at the Washington Examiner and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks, Tim, so much for joining us today, and God bless your work. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment.
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect the Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions that you've been sending in to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got today? There's been a lot of questions surrounding gun violence and measures aimed at curbing gun violence. So we wanted to delve into this question of what is the church's stance on, say, gun ownership, use of a weapon, and then some of these measures aimed at curbing gun violence? That's a great question. Of course, there are a lot of causes and things that lead into someone using a violent weapon or a deadly weapon to take life. And it, first of all, stems from lack of respect for the dignity of the human person and the sanctity of life. And that's a sad thing that we need to uh, overcome in our society and build a culture of life, fight the throwaway culture, fight the culture of violence that is so prevalent in anything from our video games to our music to our entertainment uh, to our interactions with others to how we treat other nations. Violence seems to be more and more uh, the solution to our problems. But that's something that we need to lament, pray about, and then overcome in our own lives. But how do we try to stem through public policy the massive amounts of gun violence uh, that seem prevalent in our news cycle every day? Um, Most of it, of course, is people committing suicide, sadly, with guns, but also these mass shootings as well. How can we protect life? The first thing to think about when it comes to gun debates and guns and public policy is that we need to pull, again, with through the lens of Catholic social teaching, pull the debate out of the either-or polarization, as though the, the two positions are either gun abolition or unfettered gun access to any type of weapon one might choose. And we need to start with Catholic social teaching and sound principles, that we have rights, uh, first of all, because we have debts. We have debts to our Creator, and to the extent we have rights, it's because uh, we have responsibilities uh, to fulfill certain tasks and functions. And so in that context, one thinks about how do we situate gun rights and the right to own a gun or right to self-defense. And I think that latter part is the important thing to consider is the right to self-defense. People have a right to defend themselves, um, and they have the right to use effective force to do so. The question is, what is effective force? And how do those rights, how do they situate themselves within the context of the common good? To what extent are rights subject to the common good? So first principle, we have rights because we have responsibilities. And one of our responsibilities is to defend ourselves and to defend others, to protect life, never to be the aggressor, but also for the principle of protection. So we also have to think about our American public law and that the Supreme Court has said there's a civil right to for individuals to own a gun. It's not merely a collective right of militias. It's a civil right to own a gun. So what, how do we think about um, and apply those principles to public policy questions? And can public policy and limitations on access to guns limit gun deaths. There's evidence on both sides of the issue that these laws uh, limiting access to guns have a big effect. Um, The jury's still out, but uh, one might say that there's some low-hanging fruit here, and those might be called common-sense gun laws that have been proposed. The U.S. bishops have for decades uh, advocated a ban on assault military-style weapons, high-capacity magazines, etc., etc. There are many weapons that are available that even the military doesn't use, and those can be purchased. Uh, do we really need those to defend ourselves? Do we need them for hunting, etc., etc.? Um, weapons that can cause a significant amount of deaths in a short period of time. To what extent do does limiting our access to those weapons support the common good? 
Similarly, again, going back to that basic principle of rights and responsibilities, we want to ensure that everyone who exercises their right to own a gun can do so responsibly. Background checks, what are called red flag laws. We've been advocating for those here in Minnesota through the Minnesota Catholic Conference for a number of years. We'll continue to advocate for those, and you can even uh, advocate them for yourself by joining our Catholic Advocacy Network at mncatholic.org. Again, that's mncatholic.org. And then under our Take Action header, you can find those uh, action alerts about gun violence and let your legislators know that in Minnesota, we should enact common sense laws that protect people from gun violence and uh, make sure that people who exercise the right to own a gun can do so responsibly. So I think the thing to think about is, again, going back to first principles, connecting rights and responsibilities and supporting the common good, recognizing people's right to defend themselves. But to what extent should, can we limit people's access to weapons uh, that cause a mass amount of, that can cause violent deaths and many violent deaths in a short period of time? And at the same time, ensure people who have guns can exercise their gun ownership responsibly. So those are sort of bedrock principles. We've been applying them to key public policy debates like promotion at the federal level of the assault weapons ban, but at the local level, uh, the red flag bill, the gun violence restraining order, as we call it, and also the universal background checks. Most gun purchases are covered by background checks, but there are still private to private sales and transfers. There's inter- questions about interstate gun uh, purchases. There are people who lie and try, as they say. Um, they can't own a gun, but they try to do so. How can we strengthen enforcement around gun rights? Like you were saying, if anyone is really looking to take action on this issue, they can go to our action center mncatholic.org forward slash action center, where we have a sort of one-click action alert there where you can contact your legislators on this issue. Let them know that it matters to you, that you're looking to have common sense laws passed. Before we go today, we want to give you a couple other practical ways that you can start to take action, not just on this issue, but in general. How do we start to live out our faithful citizenship in the public arena How can we start to bridge that gap between our faith and politics? And that's why we bring you the bricklayer segment and with one practical tip for doing so. And we sometimes forget that the state capitol is not just a place where legislators meet, but it's the people's house. Um, It's really a beautiful public building. It's beautiful in the sense that it reflects the importance and dignity of what takes place there. And that's the task of coming together as a community and deciding how ought we to live together? How do we shape laws that serve as the common good. And built into that building are so many symbols, depictions, principles, ideals uh, that should govern that process, especially the virtues, the just lawgivers, everyone from Moses and Abraham Lincoln uh, to highlights of the virtues, quotes from uh, great lawmakers of the past, such as Daniel Webster. Uh, so it's a really a great place to visit, to, to, to think about what happens at the Capitol and what happens in our public life, to see this the magnificent structure that's only recently been restored. So we encourage you as the practical tip, as you haven't done so, and even if you've done so, to do it again. I Every time I go in there, I'm just in awe of the place, and I go in there almost on a daily basis during session. But visit our state Capitol. There are tours that run about uh, 45 minutes. Those happen throughout the day. Deer out of session right now. They, the first tour starts at 10. The last tour starts at 2. Uh, but you can, during session, uh, pretty much from 10 to 4, there are tours running pretty consistently. It's a great way to introduce your kids, your grandkids to the legislative process, uh, what it means to come together as a community in a very grand space and build our common life together. If you haven't seen the Capitol since it was renovated a couple of years ago, it's highly worth doing, so I really recommend that. And again, if we want our 
young people especially to consider the importance of politics, the noble vocation of politics. If we want to encourage people to, to get in, involved in the process, what better way than to introduce them to that grand space in which our laws are made. Again, the tours are free. You can go to room 126 in the Capitol. Again, those are about 45 minutes. Uh, just show up. Uh, check the website. For more information and specific times, uh, visit the Minnesota Historical Society's website, mnhs.org slash capital. Uh, just Google it, though, too. That's really easy. And again, right now, tours start the first one uh, at 10 o'clock, the last one at 2 o'clock. But you can also make appointments, bring groups. Uh, etc., etc. So really a grand and beautiful space. Um, you'll see the picture of Abraham Lincoln uh, hanging in the House gallery, um, the House chamber. Uh, he is hanging there precisely because he was the first president that Minnesotans were able to vote for as a state. So just so many rich symbols um, and beautiful imagery in that space and uh, that really lends the mind and the eye toward the virtues of public life and political engagement. That's all the time we have for today, but don't forget that you can help others bring the Catholic faith into the public arena by becoming a sponsor of the Bridge Builder Show. It's a great opportunity for businesses and organizations to advertise to people who are committed to bringing faith into public life. For more information about sponsorship opportunities, visit our website at mncatholic.org or email kit at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. You can also email us there for questions for our mailbag segment. And remember, you can find our past episode uh, episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today and hearing about Tim Carney and our upcoming event on September 4th with him. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges in public life. For Kid Cross, I'm Jason Atkins. Have a blessed weekend.